Well, we continue in Matthew, and what we've been seeing in these last few weeks is, um, um, is Matthew panning the camera onto different groups and the responses to Jesus. We've been talking about that uh, on the Nazarenes and how they responded, on Herod and how he responded, on the crowds and how they continue to respond, on the disciples especially and how they're, um, how they're doing with Jesus' identity and their faith in that. We saw last week um, Jesus dealing with the scribes and Pharisees and him um, saying, you, you guys are elevating your tradition over above God's commands and you're not deal- your heart is actually very far away from God. And then telling the disciples that it's not what outs- what's outside, it's not what you ingest that makes you unclean before God, that defiles you before God. It's what comes from within. It comes from your heart, your thoughts. Uh, all of those different thoughts defiling you before God. That's ultimate defilement. That's ultimate defilement, and that is what you need to deal with. And then we see the camera shift again this week as we turn on to this Canaanite woman, and the disciples are still there, and of course Jesus is still there. But the main idea for this text, as uh, Andre read for us this morning, as we look through it, the main idea is this. You ought to have great faith. Jesus is the shepherd king sent for Israel. You ought to have great faith. Jesus is the shepherd king sent for Israel. And uh, there's going to be, I've broken it up into two parts, but really it's one interaction. But what we're going to see in verses 21 through 24 is this, that Jesus is the shepherd king sent for Israel. Jesus is the shepherd king sent for Israel. And in the second part, in verses 25 through 28, we're going to see that seeing Jesus as the shepherd king ought to produce great faith. Seeing Jesus as the shepherd king ought to produce great faith. Let's go ahead and look at verse 21 as we walk through the text. And Jesus went away from there. Now, where is from there? Uh, We're not exactly sure. It's certainly the same place he was just talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Those scribes and Pharisees came from Jerusalem, but they weren't in Jerusalem. They're in Galilee still somewhere. It's possible that they're still in Gennesaret. That's the last place that is mentioned in verse 34 of chapter 14 when they cross over. And Gennesaret is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they're still around the Sea of Galilee. They're still in that region. Um, But Jesus goes away. He moves. And we've been seeing him move a lot recently. And notice this, Jesus went away from there and he withdrew. Now, that's a key word uh, that we've been seeing in Matthew uh, throughout. Usually when Jesus withdraws or when someone else in the book of Matthew withdraws, it's uh, because there's a threat. There's a threat of violence. There's a threat of conflict. Is that the same case here? Well, very well could be because we just saw the scribes and the Pharisees interacting with Jesus We know back in chapter 12 that the scribes and Pharisees, at least the ones in Galilee, were seeking to destroy Jesus. So they have already, um, at least the ones in Galilee are seeking to destroy Jesus. Seems like that's uh, probably in line with what the ones from Jerusalem, the contingent from Jerusalem that just interacted with him are doing. They're seeking to destroy Jesus. And even what the disciples said, they said, don't you know what you just said to the scribes and Pharisees? was offensive to them. So there's, our, there's a situation of conflict and Jesus withdraws. It's a strategic withdrawal. 
Uh, he, it's not, the time is not right yet for his suffering, but he withdraws strategically. Notice where he withdraws to, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, they're on the coast. They're on the western coast. They're on the Mediterranean coast. To the north, a great deal, uh, probably about 40 to 50 miles away to the north of the Sea of Galilee. So this is not a small trip. This is a fairly large trip as Jesus moves with his disciples to the north. And notice where he's moving to, to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is a more Gentile territory. It's out of the district. It's out of the control of Herod. It's more Gentile populated. It could be that there's some Jews there still, but it is predominantly a Gentile region. Tyre and Sidon, we've seen them before. Uh, they're mentioned in chapter 11 uh, with Jesus uh, talking about, uh, if you, talking to the cities he did his great miracles in, if you would have, uh, if, if Tyre and Sidon would have uh, seen the miracles that I would have done among you, they would have repented. That's Jesus' message. The summary message is repent for the kingdom of heaven, the heavens has drawn near. Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago. And what we said back then, and it's true now, that Tyre and Sidon, at least historically, they're enemies to Israel, uh, and they're arrogant enemies to Israel. Tyre and Sidon kind of get highlighted in the Old Testament as these, these, um, these uh, types of arrogance, these ones that are opposing God's people in an arrogant way. So Jesus is going to this Gentile territory. It has a history of opposition and pride against God's people. So what happens? Verse 22, the action starts. And behold, so it grabs our attention. Behold what? Look at this. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, it's intentional, it's important how Matthew characterizes this woman. This woman is a Canaanite. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament at all, uh, you recognize that name. You recognize the name of Canaanite. Because uh, Canaanites are bad news in the Old Testament. In fact, they're, by and large, those are the people that God told Israel to drive out and even to annihilate from the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and they're supposed to annihilate the Canaanites. So the mere fact that this woman exists is because Israel is disobeyed. But also we find out in the Old Testament that Canaanite women in particular are bad news. They lead Israel astray. They lead Israel astray to, to idol worship. So um, this isn't just a Gentile. This is like the, um, if, if Jews had a ranking of Gentiles, this would be like the lowest of the low kind of Gentile. This would be the sort of person that, uh, this is our historic enemy, but this is also a, the people that shouldn't even be in the land. The only reason they're still in the land is because of Israel failed its job. These people led, our, um, led Israel astray to idol worship, to sexual immorality, to all sorts of things. And this is who comes out. This is who comes out. This Canaanite woman from a Gentile region. So they're in a Gentile region, and then we've got like the, the lowest of the low, so to speak, Gentiles coming out and making an appeal to Jesus. 
Now, I said that I broke this text up into two parts, but really, a lot of what's structuring this text is the interaction between this woman and Jesus. And what you're going to see as we walk through this is there's really four interchanges that happen between the woman's appeal and then Jesus' response. So there's going to be an appeal, at least reported directly or indirectly by the woman, and then there's going to be a response by Jesus. And that's what drives a lot of the drama in this section. So we notice the first appeal by this woman. What does she say? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So uh, she's crying out for mercy for her because her daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. That's a scary situation. You can imagine that. Uh, We've seen demon possession throughout the book of Matthew. The daughter is the one who's severely demon oppressed, but notice how the woman appeals, have mercy on me. In other words, if Jesus, as she's appealing to him, deals with this demon oppression, she evidently knows and has heard reports that Jesus can do this sort of thing, has the power to drive out demons, that if he does that, it's going to be mercy to her. But notice how she appeals, what titles she uses for Jesus. First one is Lord. Now, this doesn't, sometimes this title is used to ascribe deity to the one to whom it's spoken to. Um, But probably here, this is more a title of respect, uh, of recognition of Jesus' authority, like uh, what we saw with the centurion in Matthew 8. Uh, It's a very similar sort of language. In fact, we're going to go back there eventually, Matthew 8, with the centurion, another Gentile, and he recognizes Jesus' authority, and so he appeals to him as Lord, and it's probably the same thing that's happening here. But even more significantly, what you see is the woman calling Jesus son of David. Son of David. That is a significant term. It is a messianically loaded term. Uh, You remember that God promised uh, to David, we call it the Davidic covenant, he promised to David one of his sons, one of his offspring would sit on the throne of Israel forever, and not only the throne of Israel, but all the nations of the world. And so this title, this became a title, Son of David, to refer to the Messiah. And this is a big kind of politically charged term. In fact, if you were to turn back to the, it's not used that often. It's used early on in Matthew. Uh, It's used with the two blind men in Matthew uh, 9, who uh, are seeking out Jesus, and they call him son of David. In fact, that's another episode we're going to look at later, because it's very similar to the one we're looking at. But uh, they use it. But then the last time it was used was in Matthew 12. Matthew 12. And in Matthew 12, you see kind of a sense of how politically charged this is, because if you look at Matthew 12, 22, we see this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. So we got demons again. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So the same title is used, but What's going on there is, at this point, Jesus has done enough miracles, he's done enough miraculous that the crowds are sort of kind of catching on, 
and they're asking, hey, is this, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? And notice how the Pharisees respond. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they put a stop to it, right? That uh, this is a politically charged term. Uh, this, you know, he, Jesus doesn't fit their mold. So they shut this term down. So the only reason I bring that to your attention is this is a significant title that the Canaanite woman from a Gentile territory, the lowest of the low Gentiles, is using of Jesus. What is she saying? She's saying, you're the Messiah, and I know you can do this, so have mercy on me. She sees who Jesus is and knows he has the power to do this, and based on that identity, she's making, she's making this appeal. Now, first appeal, what is Jesus' first response? Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. He, she ignores her. He totally ignores the woman. Now, that's surprising, right? That's a surprising response from Jesus. Because even in the last few episodes where we've seen the crowd bringing all these sick people, demon-possessed people to Jesus, he, you know, we question the crowd's motives for why they're bringing these sick people to Jesus, but Jesus does what? He has compassion, and he heals them all. That's what he always does. He, he shows compassion, and he heals them all. In fact, it's even more surprising if we think back that he's not only done this for uh, Jews, he's done this for Gentiles, you can think back to um, the centurion in Matthew 8. Again, that's a similar episode, and we're going to read it later. But there, the centurion comes up to Jesus and says very similar things. Have mercy on my servant. Heal him. And Jesus is like Johnny on the spot. Yeah, I'm going to come to your house and heal him. But he doesn't here. He ignores this woman completely. doesn't answer her at all. So what's Matthew doing? That's surprising. He's drawing our attention to it. And because it's out of character for Jesus, uh, we have suspicions that Jesus and Matthew are doing something different here. They're doing something different. So we just keep that in mind as we go along. But that's the first appeal and the first um, response. And the idea is that the, the woman keeps doing this. The, the verb form that's used here, it's kind of used as a repetitive action. Like she keeps doing this. She keeps crying out. And she keeps basically saying the same thing. She's persistent in that. So that's the first appeal and first response. Jesus totally ignores her. What's the next thing we see? Still in verse 23, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. So evidently, even though Jesus has snubbed her, she, he's ignored her, um, uh, she, that doesn't dissuade her at all. She keeps crying out. She keeps coming after Jesus. She keeps uh, ascribing to him, you're the, you're, you're the son of David. You're the Messiah. You can do this. Please have mercy on me. She keeps doing that. This time we see the, this is the second appeal, but this time it's reported indirectly through the disciples. The disciples are like, hey, she's still coming. She's still appealing to us. She's still, and this is getting annoying. Uh, this is getting kind of, uh, she's crying out after this. This is drawing, we don't know, is it just the drawing attention to them that they don't want? Or is that this is just plain out annoying, send her away. 
send her away. Now, I think by them saying send her away, what they're actually saying is, hey, do what she asks. We know you can do that, Jesus. Do what she asks and just take care of it, right? Uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, so uh, take care of what she's asking for. Go ahead and do that for her so that she can go away and we can have some peace. I think that's the idea, and not just send her away empty-handed because of what Jesus says next. And here's where we see the second answer. So we see the second appeal routed through the disciples, and then we get the second answer. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The only reason, this is why I say that it makes sense that the disciples are asking, go ahead and heal her daughter and send her away. Because if they just said, well, send her away, well, Jesus is saying, no, I'm uh, effectively in verse 24, no, I'm not going to heal her because I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples are effectively saying, hey, heal her, Jesus, or heal her daughter, Jesus, so that she goes away. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not because I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we don't know how close the woman is. Chances are she's within earshot, right? I mean, she's been coming out and crying after these, um, these people, uh, the, the disciples, so they're within earshot. And so Jesus says this, he says it to his disciples, but probably in such a way that the woman overhears and essentially answers her again, snubs her again, says, no, I'm not going to do it. Why? At least on the surface, there's no, there's no encouragement that he's going to do it. Why? Because I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that brings up something we've seen before in Matthew. At the end of Matthew 9 and 10, remember what Jesus said before he sent out his apostles to go and preach the same message that he had been preaching? Um, he, he used this language of he saw his, uh, the people as sheep without a shepherd. And that alluded back to Ezekiel 34 and other Old Testament passages that describe Israel being scattered, being in exile because of their sin, but ultimately because their leaders, their shepherds, hadn't cared for them. And the promise in Ezekiel 34 is that God is going to come as the shepherd of his people, and he's going to regather them. He's going to regather Israel as his nation. He's going to bless them. He's going to bring the promises on them. He's going to bring peace to them. And then he also says at the end of Ezekiel 34, I'm going to give you David to shepherd Israel, to bind you up, to heal you, to bring you peace, all these sorts of things. And that's what Jesus has been doing. That's why, and he says it here, he was sent. Jesus was sent first and foremost for Israel. That's what he's been doing. He's been proclaiming to Israel, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. He's calling them to repentance. He's trying to regather them, and yet they haven't been repentant. They haven't been repentant and exercised faith. And so what Jesus says here is true, that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what he's highlighting here is that God does have a plan for all the nations of the world. God has had a plan for all nations of the world, but it always goes through the nation of Israel. 
You can see this, uh, well, at the founding of the nation, really, in a lot of ways, in Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, we get this major, uh, right, after the, well, right after the Tower of Babel, and after the nations of the world get dispersed, it's, it's a bleak picture. How is God going to reach the nations? Well, we get the kind of nutshell form of God's program in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says this, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then this, so all that stuff is basically for Abraham and his offspring and the nation that's going to come, which will eventually be Israel. But catch this, and in you, all the families of the earth that just got scattered in Genesis 11 over everywhere, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's program is, yes, to reach the nations, but he's always planned to do it through Israel. And as you walk through the Old Testament, as you walk through the prophets, as you see God do the exodus, he's gathering Israel as a nation, as his treasured possession. He, he, he uses language of, these are my, this is my son nation, this is my adopted son nation, these are my treasured possession. And so he constitutes them as a nation to then, through blessing them, through blessing Israel, reach the nations of the world. So what Jesus says is true. Through the Messiah, it's coming. He sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to gather them. And then once they're gathered, then those blessings will flow to the nations of the world. But here he's using it to dissuade this woman, this Canaanite, from coming. And again, we scratch our heads a little bit because it's like, well, wait a minute. What about the centurion back in Matthew 8? He's, he's not of the people of Israel. Yes, he's living among them, but he's not of the people of Israel, and yet Jesus took care of him then. Jesus healed the servant then. Why is, this, why is Jesus doing what seems to be out of character? Why is, she, why is he dissuading this woman, pushing her back, snubbing her in this sort of a way? What he says is true, and yet he's using it in such a way to dissuade this woman. And so that, that, that shows us the end of that second appeal and answer. And essentially what we see is the woman recognizes who Jesus is. She recognizes him as that shepherd king, the promised king of Israel. She knows who Jesus is, and she knows that he's the Messiah. She knows that, uh, what his, uh, that he has the ability to do this, and she keeps persistently appealing, and yet Jesus is just keeping her at arm's length, keep pushing her back. Why? Well, we'll see the resolution in this kind of second half where we see that seeing Jesus as the shepherd king ought to produce great faith. Seeing Jesus as the shepherd king ought to produce great faith. Look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him. So evidently she's really close by. We think that she probably overheard what Jesus just said to the disciples. She comes and she kneels before him. Now, this, is the, uh, this can denote the language of worship. This is the word that can, can be used for worship. But again, it's probably more that she's using, it's the, the, the posture of respect, the posture of respect for the Davidic king, the Davidic king that 
that um, has come. And so it's a posture of respect, but notice this constitutes the third appeal, which he came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And literally it's the idea, come to my aid. Lord, so she calls him Lord again. Again, the title of respect. She knows who he is as the Davidic king. Come to my aid. Come to my aid. So this is the third appeal that she makes. And what's the, uh, the third answer? And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. So what's the picture that Jesus is painting? He paints a little word picture. And the word picture is, okay, you're sitting at a meal in the house. And it could be a Gentile house because he mentions dogs. And it would be unlikely to have, you know, um, domesticated dogs, which is kind of the picture here in a, in a Jewish home, although it could be potentially. But in any case, he's painting this picture of you're at table, you're having a meal together, and you've got your, the head of the house, you've got the father, and you've got the children seated around the table, and you've got the dogs. You've got the domesticated dogs right there. And he's saying, well, in that situation, of course it's not right. You wouldn't, if you set a loaf of bread in front of your children, you're not going to take that loaf of bread and just huck it to the dogs. That would be wrong. <laughs> that would be totally wrong because children are worth more than dogs. The order is not right. And what is he doing with this word picture? He's essentially saying, uh, look, uh, healings, and remember, that's what the woman is asking for. Hey, uh, do this, free my daughter from demon possession. And, he, and what is Jesus saying? He's essentially equating the children with Israel, which is true. That's God's chosen nation. Uh, the people in that nation or the nation itself was described as God's son. So here are God's children in this nation. And then in regards to priority, even that what we talked about already, uh, in, in comparison, Gentiles are dogs. Not that God doesn't have a plan to reach the Gentiles. He does. It's not that God doesn't want to save Gentiles. He does. But as we've seen, there is a priority in God's plan and program for the nation of Israel, over against and over above Gentiles. And so he's putting the woman in the dog category, and he's talking about, hey, look, uh, I've been doing all these miracles and these uh, exorcisms for the people of Israel. Why has he been doing that? We've been seeing him doing that because Jesus is giving a foretaste of the kingdom to Israel. Uh, he's been saying, hey, look, this is what the future kingdom is going to look like, the peace, the prosperity, the rescue from demonic forces. And Jesus came for Israel, so he's giving those miracles to Israel, ultimately for the purpose of not just doing those miracles, but to draw them to repentance and faith. And what Jesus is saying here, look, it's not right. If that's my mission, then it's not right for me to just take some of that healing bread, so to speak, and just give it to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, there's, there's everything in this is dissuading the woman, right? This is, this, is say, this is keeping her at arm's length. There's nothing encouraging about this at all. And that's his third answer. So we've seen the woman's third appeal and the third answer. Now we get into the fourth appeal and the fourth answer. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord, and literally how this reads is, 
Yes, Lord, for even. It's not yet or but. It's a conjunction that means for. So she is, she's saying something. She's saying, yes, Lord. Now let me give you a reason and support for me saying yes, Lord. And we'll talk about the yes, Lord aspect in a second because it hides something in it that's quite shocking, actually. But what does she do to support her response? She extends Jesus' metaphor. Uh, she says, well, for, uh, for, let's think about this. Even in your metaphor, even the dogs are eating from the crumbs that are falling from the table of their masters. Saying, this woman, right, makes, this is her fourth appeal. Essentially, she's saying, let's take your analogy, Jesus, and let's actually extend it. Even in your analogy, yeah, you might not give a whole loaf to the dogs, but at least there's going to be crumbs left over. Those crumbs are going to fall down. And of course, those dogs are going to get some of the crumbs. That's what she's saying. What is she essentially saying? She's like, she doesn't dispute being called a dog. She understands she understands, she's acknowledged that Jesus is the king of Israel, um, that shepherd king that came for Israel. She doesn't, she doesn't dispute the distinction between Israel and the nation. She says, yeah, I'll acknowledge that. But even in the scenario you're talking about, the dogs get some crumbs. And effectively, through saying that, she's making another appeal. She's saying, no, you, you actually... Um, I am still calling on you to do this. That's what yes, Lord, means. What did Jesus say? It's not right to, do, to, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What is the woman saying? Yes, it is right. Yes, it is right because, yes, because of, and she's not just using the analogy. She's using the analogy in a clever way, but she understands that, she evidently understands what the scriptures themselves say that, there's supposed to be blessings for the nations through Israel. Yeah, you could call it crumbs, but there's still going to be blessings through Israel to the nations. And so it's kind of pictured in the way she describes that. Yes, it is right, Lord. Yes, it is. So she's going head to head, toe to toe with Jesus and what he, um, he has said in a respectful way. And yet it is bold, Right? That's the thing you're supposed to see here is the boldness and the persistence. Good grief. Uh, this woman keeps coming and keeps coming uh, despite all opposition or seeming opposition anyway. And notice how Jesus responds. We get a different conjunction then that actually highlights kind of this last verse as the culmination. Then Jesus answered her. So we get the fourth response and notice the difference. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly, literally from that hour, meaning right from then on out. So she gets what she wants. But what is Jesus highlighting? And now we get a little bit of an explanation. Like, why is Jesus acting out of character here? Well, because he's drawing her out. He's drawing the woman out, and he's drawing her great faith out. That's the highlight here. Great is your faith. And what Jesus is doing for his disciples and what Matthew is doing for us is, for us, is he's He's, for his audience, is he's highlighting, he's highlighting the woman's greatness of faith. 
And that comes in a long line in Matthew, or a fairly established line, of talking about those who have all the disadvantages in seeing who Jesus actually is, seeing more clearly and believing more clearly than those who have the advantages. And now I want to take you back to show that in two epi former episodes in Matthew. Let's turn back to the centurion. I've referenced it a couple times. So Matthew 8, go to Matthew 8. And what you're going to hear in these two episodes that we're going to look at, that we've already seen in Matthew, is you're going to, um, you're going to see a lot of similarities. So listen for the similarities and the contrasts. But it forms this chain uh, and the, 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 the woman, the, the, the Canaanite woman, is just kind of the latest instance in that chain of teaching about faith. So, uh, Matthew 8, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion, a Gentile, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's Israelites, will be, at this, in this passage anyway, uh, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you, as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So what do you see here? You see a Gentile outside of Israel, and Jesus is shocked at this guy's faith because as a Gentile, he does not have the advantages of the sons of the kingdom of the children, to use Jesus' analogy with the Canaanite woman, and yet he exercises a greater faith. He exercises a greater faith. He sees who Jesus is. Maybe not perfectly, right? But he sees who Jesus is and what he's able to do, and he believes. We see another similar episode in Matthew 9 with two blind men. Uh, again, we've seen this uh, several months ago, but you see a lot of similarities and differences with the Canaanite woman. Matthew 9, 27 through 31. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. That's the exact same thing the Canaanite woman says, basically. So these blind men recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice what happens. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord, which again sounds familiar, then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. And they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Again, what do you see here? Now, these, these guys are probably uh, Israelites, but they have a huge natural disadvantage, don't they? They're blind. 
And there's a sense of irony here where you've got the crowds coming to Jesus for healings and the scribes and the Pharisees, even at this point in Matthew, and they, they, they have all, they can see, and yet they can't see. And where you have blind men seeing what Jesus wants them to see, yeah, he's the Messiah, he's the son of David, and exercising faith. They see who Jesus is, they see his identity, they see what he's able to do, and they trust him. And then you can even compare what we're seeing with the, 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 faith, uh, with the Canaanite woman. Her faith is great. Great is your faith in comparison to what we just saw with the walking on water episode. Where, um, look at verse 30. So Peter gets out of the boat, right? Uh, verse, let's back up to verse 29 in chapter 14. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out with his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? So what's Matthew doing with the episode with the Canaanite woman? The highlight, and why Jesus drew her out, the highlight is her faith. And it's part of this whole string of showing the people who have all the advantages, the natural advantages, the Israelites, they have the, the, the scriptures, they have these teachers, they have, uh, they're the chosen nation, all of this stuff, and they should be the ones repenting and having great faith. But what do we see? We see majority of the crowds, and especially the scribes and the Pharisees, not repenting, not having faith. Now, the disciples have faith, but it's a little faith. Even those who are closest to Jesus, they're genuine disciples, and they're closest to Jesus. They have advantages. They're seeing who Jesus is and what he's doing, and yet they're still growing, and they still need to have their faith matured. And yet here with this Canaanite woman who has all the natural disadvantages, she's a Canaanite woman from a Gentile territory, and yet she recognizes Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the shepherd king. And because of, notice what the woman's faith does here. Again, it gives us another great picture of what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is not just mental assent. Yep, I believe that, 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 and that. I believe that that's true. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is always looking to a person, to God, to Jesus. In this case, we see that. What is the woman doing? Because of who she knows Jesus is as the son of David, as the Messiah, and he has the ability to do, to, to, to do the, the, the cleansing from the demon, what does her faith do? Her faith takes action. That's what faith, biblical faith does. You see the person, not just the facts about the person, but you see the person, you see his identity, you see Jesus' identity, you know what he's capable of, and you act in response. You act. And what's the action here? Persistence and boldness. Persistence and boldness. This gal just keeps coming, despite all of the, the opposition that is thrown up by Jesus in her face, the seeming opposition, but what is Jesus really doing? She's, he's drawing out her faith. It's bold and persistent. It's not right for the to give the children's bread to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord. Why does she say that? Because she knows who Jesus is and she knows his character. He, she knows who he is as the Messiah. 
She knows who's, what his character is like. She knows the power that she has, and she banks everything on that, even over against seeming opposition from Jesus. So what is Matthew doing with this? Well, really, he's doing a couple things. One, he's showing, here's what faith looks like, the, faith that Je- that the, the saving faith, the di- true disciple faith that Jesus is calling people to. But he's also at the same time, because remember, he's writing to a Jewish Christian audience who are probably still struggling with, like, is Jesus really the Messiah? Did he really come for Israel? If that's the case, why didn't the kingdom come? Why did he go away? Why did he get crucified? And Jesus, uh, Matthew's saying, and, and Jesus is saying, well, he was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but they didn't exercise this kind of faith. And people like Canaanites and centurions and sinners and tax collectors and blind men did. And it's an indictment against the lack of faith and the lack of repentance from Israel as a whole. It's both a call and and an indictment. It's an indictment against Israel as a whole, and yet it's a call for those who are genuine disciples. This is what great faith looks like. It's persistent and it's bold. So as we kind of conclude and think about what can we take away from this? What practical things can we take away from what we see here? It's a beautiful picture. Well, first, let's, let's talk about this. This is one you might kind of gloss over, but recognize the privilege we have as Gentiles at this point in redemptive history. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. We don't have Jewish heritage. And we're, in relation to redemptive history, we're dogs, and Israel's like the children, the chosen nation, and yet at this point, that barrier has been broken down through Jesus Christ, and we are one household with Jews and Gentiles, the the New Testament epistles talk about that later, but the privilege we have through faith in Christ to be be part of God's people, to be brought into the household of faith. That is an amazing privilege. You think of all the years and the the generations and the centuries prior to the coming of Jesus where you've got nations out there and they they don't have the scriptures, they don't have any witness of who God is. I mean, they have natural revelation so they know that God exists, but uh, they, they don't have any saving knowledge given to them. That's what Israel was supposed to bring to the world, and yet now, at this point in redemptive history, we can have faith and be brought into union with the Messiah and be part of the family. That is an amazing privilege, and one we ought to give thanks to the Lord for and praise him for. But the focus is faith, As disciples, we want to grow in faith, don't we? One of the things you see in the Gospels and through the Bible at large is faith admits of degrees. You can have little faith and still be be a true faith and a saving faith, or you can have great faith. You can have different levels of faith, and our faith grows. Uh, Romans 4 talks about how Abraham's faith grew over time. So we want to grow in faith as disciples, don't we? We do. So how do we develop great faith Well, notice what happens in this scenario. Great faith sees who Jesus is. The focus of faith is not myself and not my self-confidence, not that I've said the right things. It's Jesus. It's who he is as a living person and living and ascended right now at the right hand of God. Great faith sees who Jesus is 
his character and what he can do and what he has done on the, you know, through his cross and resurrection, and based on who Jesus is and based on what he's done and with our focus on him alone, faith, great faith, comes to him with persistence, even in the face of opposition. Biblical faith is not a one-and-done thing. Biblical faith is a lifetime of faith. It's a persistent faith that keeps you to the end by looking to Jesus and what he has done on the cross. We've, uh, we know that's where Matthew is heading. We know that Jesus is going to die on the cross for those who would entrust themselves to him, repent of their sins, repent of living for themselves, repent of having it their own way, repent of uh, having themselves be king, surrendering and turning allegiance to Jesus, trusting in him for his death in their place, and following him, acting based on that knowledge. And it's a sort of faith that perseveres, no matter the external oppositions. I mean, think of Matthew's original audience. They're Jewish Christians, like, hey, wait a minute, it was the Messiah, but he's gone, and we're getting a lot of flack from our Jewish neighbors and friends. Uh, How are we going to make it through this? Well, you're going to make it through this by seeing that Jesus is the Messiah and what he has done, and persisting, and being bold. This boldness shows up uh, even in, in how we pray. It's not just how we carry on our lives as disciples, but especially in how we pray. Prayer is an exercise of faith. It's, it's saying that I don't have the resources in and of myself, and I'm praying to the Lord. What do we pray to the Lord for? We don't pray for just stuff for us. We pray in accordance with His will. What does it mean to pray in accordance with God's will? It means to look in the Scriptures and say, what does God value? Where is God going? What has God promised? And then to boldly say, I want that. I want what you want. I want what you've promised, God, and I'm going to pray for it. So we think of things that we pray for. We pray for uh, the grace to be uh, proclaimers in our community. We We pray for grace for people to be saved. We pray for these things because we know that those are the things that God loves. And doesn't it feel sometimes like, well, I just keep praying for the same thing and nothing happens. And yet, what do we see here? Great faith sees who God is, sees who Christ is, sees his character, sees what he wants, and keeps coming, and keeps coming, and keeps coming, because you know who Jesus is. You know his character. You know what he wants. And we do that in prayer, too. We persist in prayer. Just one application, one specific aspect of our growing in prayer faith. Your faith needs persistence. Your faith needs boldness. Sometimes uh, there are things that it's like, this just looks, um, I know this is in line with what you want, God, because you, you know, what you say in the scriptures, I know this thing or this situation, if it went this way, it looks impossible. And yet I'm going to ask for it because uh, it's going to mean the great, uh, your glory. It's going to mean the furtherance of people being saved. It's going to mean your kingdom shining in the world. And it looks impossible, and yet you come to God and say, I know this is something that's in line with your revealed will and scriptures. I want it. Not for me, but because of your glory. And that's great faith, because it's not based on you. It's based on you wanting what God wants in the world. And based on who God is, based on who Christ is, and based on his character. Here's a couple other ways we could think about applying this lesson of faith you may feel, remember what we read last week and how Jesus said, 
it's the heart. It's the thoughts of the heart that defile you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I start meditating and thinking on what Jesus is saying, that my thoughts defile me before God, well, then I think about who I am and not only what I've done in the past and what I've thought in the past, but what I thought this last week or this last day, and I get kind of discouraged and I feel filthy. And in a sense, that's right. It's right to recognize that I am filthy before a holy God. And yet, what would be wrong to do would be to say, to feel that Christ will not have you because of who you are and what you've done. And you start to feel, uh, God could never accept me. God could never keep me. I'm too filthy. I'm too dirty. But use this episode with the Canaanite woman to encourage you. Notice she's getting like zero encouragement from Jesus. And yet, what does she know? She knows who Jesus is. She knows his identity. She knows what he's capable of. And she keeps coming. And so that's what we do, uh, whether uh, an unbeliever for the first time to say, I'm too filthy. No, you're, no, you're not. Jesus is greater than that. And you need to come to him in boldness and faith because of what he did on the cross and through his resurrection on, for those who would entrust themselves to him. Or you're a believer and you're struggling with assurance and you look at how filthy you are. Well, get your eyes off of self and onto Jesus and how great he is and his abilities and what he, the total and amazing reality of him paying for the sins of his people on the cross and his resurrection and dealing with that unrighteousness, that defilement in God's eyes. And not only has he dealt with that defilement in terms of standing before God, but he's creating you into a new person. And you can have that sort of great faith as the Canaanite woman, because it's not based on how great the Canaanite woman was. She's the lowest of the low. She's, 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 uh, she has all the natural disadvantages, but what drove her forward was seeing Christ and who he is. Or on the flip side, here's a flip side. So some of us feel like, I can't come to Christ. I can't believe because I'm too filthy. On the flip side, you may think that faith is an easy thing. You may think, well, I said the prayer, I prayed, you know, walked an aisle, I did this or that, I'm good to go. True faith is persistent faith. It's bold, and it's based on who Jesus is. It acts based on who Jesus is as king and as redeemer and as savior. True faith and great faith is impossible it's impossible apart from God's grace. We saw that in Matthew 11. Turn back to Matthew 11, just briefly, to show the difficulty of faith. Here's, Jesus kind of, sometimes he lifts back the curtain a little bit and kind of shows you what's going on behind the scenes, and at the same time shows you what's going on right in front of him. Matthew eleven twenty five through 28 is one of those passages. Listen to it again. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. So here you've got this God the Son and God the Father talking. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What is Jesus saying? Saying you can't come unless the Father draws you, unless he gives it to you to come. You can't have faith unless the Father gives it to you. And then the very next verse, what does Jesus say? 
Verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You can't come unless the Father grants it, so come. And that's what we see. We see the Father giving great faith like he gave to the Canaanite woman. He gives that sort of true faith that's impossible to have apart from God opening your eyes and doing what? Seeing Jesus for who he is and his ability and his character. Seeing him as dying in place for his people and their sins on their behalf, if you will entrust yourself to him and resurrecting on their behalf, showing that he paid that debt and that you can know God as a child and grow and grow in faith. You ought to have great faith because Jesus is the shepherd king sent for Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of faith. Faith is a gift. We pray that you would keep, we ask that you would keep giving us faith. You would help us to keep believing, to keep seeing you for who you are, Lord Jesus, to keep no, seeing your character, open our eyes wider and wider and our, have our vision fully filled with you, Lord Jesus, and that we would trust your power, what you have done on the cross and through your resurrection, what you are doing in heaven at the right hand of God, interceding for your own. And Lord, that based on that knowledge, we would act. We would act in boldness and persistence, no matter what the opposition is in this life. That's what we need, O oh Lord, and we can't we can't have it apart from your grace. We ask that you would give it. We ask that you would give it this morning. If there are any here who do not know you, that you would draw them to yourself. And then for those of us who do know you, you would continue to grant us faith and that you would grow us in it because of who you are as the great shepherd king, Lord Jesus. We ask also for grace to proclaim this truth to those around us in our jobs, in our families, in our community, our neighbors, Lord, to give us opportunities this week and pray that you would grant such faith, not only to us, but to others. Help us to be bold because of who we know you are. Thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.